Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. Welcome to Hope Community Church. I'm Pastor Trevor. Thank you for those of you who are joining us online. Thank you for worshiping with us. And those of you who are here in person, uh, thank you for coming this morning. Uh, before we begin our message, let's go to our Father in Heaven in prayer. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for allowing us to uh, gather in a warm building this morning to hear your word. Help us to hear what you have to say to us this morning. Help us to be focused and attentive. Help us to uh, not be distracted by the cares, the worries, the anxieties, the pains of this world, or even uh, the pleasures of this world. But help us to hear your word, pure and true. May your spirit humble us. May it convict us. Uh, may we respond appropriately, Father. We ask this, Father, so that we would be sanctified, edified, and equipped, so that we may go out from here and glorify you in all that we do. We ask this by the power of the Spirit that dwells within us. In the name of your Holy Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Do you trust God fully? Not only when he promises blessing, but when he tells you no to even the things that you desire. Do you understand the danger of not being totally satisfied in God? That the works of the flesh, the sins of our lives, they are essentially rooted in being unsatisfied, being discontent with and not trusting God. Can you say with full confidence the thing that Paul says in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, words that he writes while he's in chains in prison? He writes, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him. That's Christ who strengthens me. Paul's saying here that regardless of blessings or curses, regardless if he has wealth or he's experiencing poverty, whether he has safety or he's enduring affliction, whatever it may be, he can do all those things and he can be content in all those situations because he has Christ. And it's in Christ alone that he does these things because the grace of Christ is sufficient. So regardless of what God provides you or what he keeps from you, what he denies you, is God's favor, God's presence in your life, is it enough? And when we speak of God's favor, we're not talking about health and wealth. We're not talking about prosperity. You might get those things, but when we talk about God's favor, we're talking about being reconciled with God. We're talking about being in right relationship with him and having everlasting life. A life that does not have this kind of satisfaction or has its satisfaction, its trust, its dependence rooted in God is an idolatrous life. An idolatrous life produces some of the ugliest fruits of human depravity. And the chapters before us this morning, chapters 20 and 21 of 1 Kings, Ahab, he is such a man. And he serves as a warning to us all, but Ahab also serves as a comfort as well. For in these chapters, we see the evil of Ahab's idolatrous heart, but we also see at the end a hope for those like Ahab. So make sure you have your Bibles open. We're not going to read all the verses, though we will cover all of them. We won't read all of them, but we will read bits and pieces. So have your Bibles open so you can follow along. You can keep track. You can be a good Berean and uh, check uh, what I am saying to you. Now, three things I want us to consider from these events in Ahab's life. First, 
Are we trusting God after the blessing, or do we only trust God for the blessing? Second, do we still trust God when he denies us what we desire? And that's important because in order for us to be satisfied with what God has given us, we must be satisfied with what awaits in eternity. And in order to be satisfied in that, we have to trust him. We have to trust what he says. We have to trust what he has told us awaits us. Finally, do we trust God with the most important thing that we need to trust him with? Our sin. So let's begin by looking at the first 12 verses. These first 12 verses of chapter 20, 1 Kings, set the stage for the two battles with Syria. Ben-Hadad II, the king of Syria, or the king also known, it's also referred to as Aram, it's north of Israel, has come south to attack Israel. For a variety of reasons, the scripture doesn't tell us the exact reason why. Perhaps he's looking to strengthen his southern border, perhaps build a trade route to the Mediterranean, um, or just simply strengthen himself before uh, King Shalmaneser III of Assyria attacks him. Because Assyria, that's the looming, big looming threat that's developing on the grand national, uh, international stage. So he comes south to Israel, and he tells Ahab, hey, Give me your, your women, your wives, your children, gold and silver. And Ben-Hadad, he shows up with 32 other kings, other facile kings, other facile states that serve under him. And Ahab, he says, sure, you can have them. And Ahab's willingness perhaps indicates a uh, facile state relationship that they have already between the two nations, perhaps formed under um, Ahab's father, Amri, when Amri at some point lost some cities to Ben-Hadad's father, Ben-Hadad I. But that first request that um, Ben-Hadad sends to Ahab, it's not enough. Because again, Ben-Hadad's not here to simply get tribute. He's here for war. So he sends another request. Look, I'm going to send my servants into your cities, and they're going to go into your homes, they're going to go into your servants' homes, and whatever pleases you, whatever you like, whatever you enjoy, we're going to take. Essentially, what he's saying is, we're, we're just going to ransack the city. And so Ahab, he calls the elders of Israel together and says, tells them what uh, Ben-Hadad has been saying, what he's responded, and like, well, we can't do that. It's like, I agree, we can't do that. So they tell him, no. And Ben-Hadad, uh, in verse 10, let's, uh, let me read it, goes, goes back to Ahab with a threat. He says, the gods do so to me more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. In other words, after we're done destroying the city, we are going to so destroy it that even the dust itself is going to be grinded up so much that it's not going to fill a handful of the men who destroy it. And that's the threat. But Ahab, he responds with a proverb. He says, tell him in verse 11, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. So Ahab's essentially saying, don't count the chickens until the eggs hatch. Right? You're, 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 you're boasting, you're, you're putting on the armor, but you're boasting as if you're ready to take it off, as if the battle has already been won, and don't do that. And this makes Ben-Hadad even more angry. So he tells his men, hey, take positions against the city. And so what Ben-Hadad has begun now here in verse 12 is a siege. The common military tactic of 9th century B.C., as, and we'll see more sieges in 1st and 2nd Kings. And so he sets in, he gets ready to siege, to, to force Ahab, to wait out the, the, the siege and force him into submission or force him to come out and, and fight him. And this is when God gets involved. 
Going into uh, verses 13 and 21, we have our first battle, and a prophet comes near to Ahab and says, look, I'm going to give you this multitude to you. And, and note the reason why. He says, behold, I will give it into your hand this day. This is verse 13. And you shall know that I am Yahweh. So Yahweh's saying, you're going to win, but it's not going to be because of Baal. It's not going to be because of how clever or strategic you are or the number of men you have. It's going to be because of me. And you will know that I am Yahweh. And it's not so that Syria will know that he's Yahweh. It's specifically for Ahab to know that he is Yahweh. Because as the king of Israel, as the king of God's people, he is leading God's people either into sin and idolatry or into righteousness. And he wants to turn Ahab's heart to himself. So Ahab asks the prophet, well, how, how are we going to go about doing this? And God gives him the strategy. Send out a small delegation. It's going to be 232 servants of the districts of the, of the, servants of the governors of the districts in Israel. They're going to go out, and they're going to go out at noon. And noon's a good time to do it if you're looking to do a sneak attack. If you're going to start a battle, typically you're not going to do it at noon. You're going to do it early in the morning. You want to maximize the amount of daylight that you have to fight. You don't want to start later in the day because it minimizes the time and it could drag out into the night and that's not a good time to fight when you don't have flashlights and the like or NVGs. So Ben-Hadad, he hears, hey, there's a small contingent of men coming. And Ben-Hadad, he's drunk because this is a siege. He's just waiting. He's, he's just relaxing, enjoying himself with the other kings. And he's like, well, take them alive. The thing is, they don't see the 7,000 other men that Ahab has sent behind the 232. And so they catch them by surprise. They strike them down, and they send them fleeing, including Ben-Hadad, who was apparently riding on a horse, drunk, I am guessing. And so he flees to, back to Syria. At the end of this battle, the prophet comes back to Ahab, and God blesses Ahab again. Not only has God given Ahab victory, but God gives Ahab wisdom and strategy. He gives him insight, a heads up. Hey, prepare yourselves. There's going to be another battle. Come springtime, Syria is going to come back, so you need to prepare yourselves for that next battle. And then on the Syrian side, Ben-Hadad's servants say, look, we lost this battle because their God is the God of the hills. See, this is a, was a common uh, belief with the ancient Eastern cultures is that gods were limited to the geography in which they ruled over. Their sovereign power couldn't extend beyond uh, particular regions or particular types of geography. And so they had poor theology of, of Yahweh's sovereign power. And they're like, well, he's the god of the hills. So if we fight them in the plains, then we can destroy them. And if we replace the 32 kings, the facile kings, with commanders who will only answer to you, we can also streamline how we fight. So Ben-Hadad takes him up on their advice, and springtime comes. And they meet at Aphek, they, they, mu- they muster up at Aphek, and they're there. And Aphek should be a familiar uh, town for us, right? First Samuel 4, way back when, when we covered it, that's when Israel, Philistines came together to fight, and the Philistines embarrassed Israel, uh, destroyed them, captured the ark, went all the way to Shiloh, and destroyed Shiloh as well. So Aphek doesn't have a good... Uh, military history for Israel. But on this particular day, it will have a good place in their history because, again, a prophet comes to Ahab, tells Ahab, hey, I'm going to again give them over to you, this multitude, right? And note the text. Israel, I mean, excuse me, Syria is referred to as a multitude. 
out there. And Israel is considered two little flocks of goats in verse 27. And God's saying, that multitude, those who are filling the country, I'm going to hand them over to you. Why? So that you, Ahab, may know that I am Ahab. I mean, excuse me, that I am Yahweh. You're Ahab. Um, that I am Yahweh. And because Syria said, he's a god of the hills. So he's also showing Syria, not my power goes everywhere. Do not think you can put me um, in a box, so to speak, and think I'm not effective out here as well. And so after looking at each other for seven days, on the seventh day, they get tired of looking at each other, and they fight one another. And in this battle, Syria gets struck down. In verse 29, we're, read, we're told 100,000 foot soldiers are struck down in one day, and then the rest flee into the city of Aphek, where a, fall falls upon, excuse me, a wall falls upon 27,000 men who were left. Meanwhile, Ben-Hadad, he hides into the inner city of Aphek. And as he's hiding in this inner city, his servants tell him, the leaders of Israel, the kings of Israel, they're merciful people. So maybe he'll spare his life. So they put on sackcloth, they put a rope on the head, and sackcloth is indicative of, of humility, perhaps remorse and regret. Uh, it's debated on what the rope on the head uh, exactly means, but more than likely something along the lines of, I'm ready to be a prisoner, I'm ready to be led away, I, I am yours, so to speak. And so Ahab, he hears that Ben-Hadad is alive. And, ben, and Ahab, he doesn't see this as an opportunity to um, exact, enact uh, God's justice on a man. He sees it as an opportunity to exploit, to strengthen his relationship, to, and, to get back the cities that his father Amri lost to Ahab's father, excuse me, Ben-Hadad's father. Now, we don't know what these cities are. All right? now, if you recall 1 Kings 15, King Asa of Judah he has Ben-Hadad first. He pays Ben-Hadad the first um, to come and fight King Basha, to get King Basha out of Judah. Uh, king Basha is the king of Israel. And he takes cities then, but King Basha is not Ahab's father. Right? Basha is a different family, different dynasty. Am Amri is Ahab's father. We don't have an account in Scripture of what cities Amri lost to Ben-Hadad the first. Regardless, Ahab is seeking to regain those cities. He's seeking to regain those cities. He's seeking to gain perhaps a potential ally with Syria for the looming Assyrian threat that's already attacking Syria at this point in time. And when Ahab does this, what he's doing is he's denying the wisdom of God. He's denying the protection of God. He embraced the blessing that God provided him. Right? He's all about, when God said, I'm going to give you this victory, Ahab's like, sure, how are you going to do it? But the minute he had the victory, he turns his back on God and decides to do things his own way. In fact, let's read verses 35, 43, and see how he is judged. A certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow, At the command of Yahweh, strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have now obeyed the voice of Yahweh, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as... He had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Now this event should call to mind another event, right? Remember 1 Kings 13? Uh, the, the man of God from Judah who went to confront Jeroboam and Bethel, and then he goes, he's told to keep on passing through, don't, don't eat, drink, food, water, and an old prophet of Samaria tricks him, deceives him to eat food and drink water, and that old prophet tells him as you go out from here because you disobeyed, 
the word of Yahweh, you're going to be struck down by a lion. And when he was, the old prophet of Samaria said, because this has happened, surely the words of God will come to be. Same thing here, a prophet, okay, you didn't listen to the word of Yahweh, the lion's going to strike you down. So now clearly it's a sign that the word of Yahweh is with this prophet, and whatever these words are going to be, it will happen. So continuing on, the prophet finds another man and said, strike me, please. The man struck him, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle. And behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall, have, shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, that's the prophet, said to Ahab, Thus says Yahweh, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. Now what the prophet does here is similar to what the prophet Nathan does to David. You remember 2 Samuel 12? David is in the midst of his sin with Bathsheba and murdering her husband, Uriah. Nathan comes to David, and Nathan tells him a story about a lamb. Asks David, well, what would you do? David passes judgment, and Nathan's like, you are the man. Same thing here. Prophet tricks the king into passing judgment upon himself, because the king had been had and he let him go. He didn't consult Yahweh in regards to what he was supposed to do, or he knew that he was supposed to slay Ben-Hadad, but yet he denied that wisdom, denied God's ways for his ways, for his wisdom. This is similar to what King Saul did in 1 Samuel 15. Remember, he was supposed to go against the Amalekites. They were devoted to total destruction. They don't destroy everything. Samuel shows up and goes, what's this bleeding of sheep that I hear in my ears? And Saul makes one excuse after another. And because of that, Saul loses the kingdom. And Samuel has to hack Agag to pieces because Saul was unwilling to do so. Likewise, the punishment for Ahab is the same. He's going to lose the kingdom. It's going to be his life for Ben-Hadad's life. It's going to be his people's life for the lives of the Syrians. So Ahab, he was blessed by God, but when he had an opportunity to finish the job, he's like, well, I have this position now. I can't let go of it. I need to strengthen my position internationally. I need to make this work out in my favor, and I'm not going to lean on what God might want me to do. I'm going to lean on what I think is right. We need to consider the same. When, when God provides for us, when he blesses you, do you trust him with it? Or are you trusting yourself? Or are the worries of the world motivating your actions? Say you're unemployed for a while, then you get that job. And when you're unemployed, you're reading God's word, you're going to church, you are faithfully acting, you're faithfully serving in the church. But then you get that job. And then all of a sudden, the job has requirements for you to do, hours for you to do, and it's like, oh, I can't go to church anymore. Or I, I can't serve in that capacity anymore. I, I can't read God's word in the morning anymore. It's just too much. I, I got to get up early, I got to stay up late, whatever it may be, we start making excuses. And all of a sudden, we're trying to hold on to that job. Because though we prayed for God to give it to us, when we have it, it's like, well, it's up to me now to keep it. 
I need this job, and we forsake God. We turn our backs on God. Or maybe it's a relationship. You've been praying for that special someone in your life, somebody to love or, and to be loved, and, and now that you have that person, you're like, well, I, 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 can't, I can't lose them. I don't want to lose them. They, 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 want, to do, they want to do this, and I, I, know, I know God's Word says we shouldn't do this, but I don't want to lose them. Are you turning your back on God? Or, or maybe you're in the relationship and you're asking God to bless it, but you're walking in sin with it. You're, you're trying to have two feet in, in one, a foot in one world and a foot in another world. So whatever situation or circumstance you are in, are you being faithful to God in it? Don't, do not think, are, are you celebrating or idolizing the gift rather than the giver, the creature rather than the creator? You need to be mindful of that. When God gives you a job or whatever blessing in your life, are you willing to lose it? Whatever he gives and he takes away, blessed be the Lord. Blessed be his name, right? Do you really believe that? If so, when he gives you a job, well, why do you move away from the church? Why do you stop reading his word? When he blesses you with relationships or whatever it may be, why do you all of a sudden back away from your walk with him? Stay walking with him. Are you satisfied in him or not? Do you trust him or not? And when you're looking for fulfillment in life, for the fulfillment in life is not in the blessings to begin with. It's in God himself. See, when you pray for God and he gives you that blessing and then you start serving that blessing rather than God, the blessing itself becomes an idol. That's not the purpose of it. That's not the purpose at all. When you work, you don't work for yourself, right? It's not work unto yourself. It's not work unto your family, unto your spouse. It's not work until you pay, to get the bills paid. It's work unto the Lord. Colossians 23, 24, whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord, not for men, not for people, not for society, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. The job that you are working, the fulfillment in that job does not come from the job. It comes from Christ. Right? Some of us are just hopping around for jobs because we don't know. We're looking for fulfillment. You need to find it in Christ first. And that's easier said than done. I, I understand. I've, I've had to learn that myself. It's easier said than done. But fulfillment in all things must be found in Christ. And if you do that, then whatever job you get, you're going to be fulfilled. Because your fulfillment is not in, in the job, it's in Christ. And you use that job for his glory. You use that job to bless the church. You use that job to advance the kingdom and to create uh, gospel opportunities of witnessing. Because you're not your own. You work for him now. And same thing with your marriage. If you're seeking that your spouse is going to fulfill you, you're going to be looking elsewhere sooner or later. It's either going to be in sexual immorality, well, looking anywhere else is sexual immorality, but it's going to be, you're not going to be happy in your marriage. If you want to be happy in your marriage, you need to be, be fulfilled in Christ. You need to be satisfied in Him and Him alone. Our trust, our satisfaction is only tested with what God, excuse me, is not only tested with what God gives us, but also with what God keeps from us, what God denies us. So moving on to chapter 21, we'll see a desire arise in Ahab that leads to evil consequences when he is denied something he wants. See, Ahab, he's in Jezreel, he's in his 
at his winter palace home, and next to the palace is a man who owns a vineyard. His name is Nabath. And Ahab, he wants to take up a hobby to plant some vegetables, apparently. So he wants to get the vineyard and grow some vegetables. But Nabath in verse 3 says, God forbid, Yahweh forbid, I give you the inheritance of my father. Now, Nabath, we don't know anything about him outside of this line that he says and his, um, uh, the fate that he apparently he will go on to suffer. But Numbers 36, 7, and this is probably what Nabath is thinking about. Numbers 36, 7, Moses writes, The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another. For every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And this could be the very words of the Torah of the law that Nabath is thinking about. That's why he says, Yahweh forbid that I give you what I have inherited from my fathers to you. Yes, you're king, but he's Yahweh. And you should be serving him. You should not be just taking land. And I don't want to give it to you. And so Ahab, in this moment, he's acting like the character of Faruka Salt. You remember her from Willy Wonka? She gets a golden ticket, not by her own means, but her father, who owns the, I think it's like a nut factory, they search all the boxes, they get the golden ticket, the spoiled brat gets to go to Willy Wonka's factory. In the midst of the tour, she continues to be ungrateful, comes across these gigantic geese that lay eggs. She doesn't want an egg, she wants a goose. She wants to take the goose home, she wants it now, and she throws a big fit. Well, that's what Ahab's doing. He goes home, vexed and sullen, right? Vexed and sullen again. Goes home, doesn't, lays in bed, and faces the wall like a, like a child pouting, right? We, all of us who are parents, we, we, we know this well. This is how Ahab is acting. And Jezebel comes along, and it's like, what's the matter? And Ahab tells, tells her, like, probably like in a pouting voice, and, he, and she mocks him. I mean, she really insults him by saying, are you not the governor of Israel? Are you not the king? Like, are you not a man? How, how are you not taking care of the situation yourself? I'll go do it. Go and eat, and I'll, mommy will go take care of this for you. I mean, that's like the situation that's going on here. And so Jezebel concocts an evil scheme. She writes a letter in the name of Ahab, seals it with a king's seal, sends it to the leaders of, of the city, says, hey, you're going to set up in the bath. You're going to get two worthless men because you need two witnesses to bring a charge of blasphemy according to the law. And you're going to stone him, accuse him of it, convict him of it, take him outside, and then you're going to stone him to death for it. And that's what happens. This poor man, whom we know nothing about except what has happened to him. So she tells Ahab, hey, you know that guy you talked about? He's dead, mysteriously, right? Like as if Ahab didn't know what happened. He arises and takes the vineyard. See, Ahab, when he was denied something, especially in the name of Yahweh, he turned to the ways of Satan, to the ways of darkness, to fill that void. He should have turned to Yahweh. He should have lamented over the fact that, one, he desired something that he shouldn't have had, but he should lament the fact that he, 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 he's longing for something that he doesn't have. We must not allow Satan to fill the void in our own lives or to satisfy our own appetites when God says no or when we know God has already said no. We must trust God that we have all that we need and he is all that we need. We don't need anything else. You think you need that car. You think you need that job. You think you need your health. You think you need that money. You think you need the house that you're currently living in, perhaps. But all you need is Christ. See, if, if we're not satisfied in him, and we have this discontent growing in our lives, that's a void. 
And that void, that empty space in our lives, allows the, allows the devil, allows the world to come along with a sweet treat, like a truffle. Remember like the queen, the evil winter queen of Narnia giving truffles to Peter? I'll give you a truffle if you do this, another truffle. And he keeps eating the truffles. And that's what the devil will do. I'll give you some satisfaction, and it tastes good, and it does satisfy for a moment. But true satisfaction doesn't satisfy for a moment. True satisfaction never ends. When we talk about satisfaction in Scripture, it's an eternal satisfaction. right? The one who comes to me and drinks of this water shall never thirst again. Why? Because he or she is fully and utterly satisfied. But the devil and the world, whatever they offer you, does not lead to that satisfaction. And so if we allow the devil, we don't go to God and the devil keeps feeding us truffles, we'll keep going back to him for those truffles. And sooner or later, we're addicted to truffles. We're addicted to chocolate. We're addicted to that sweet. And we know where sweets lead us. It's not good for your health. It's not good for your body. And it won't be good for your soul. And a helpful illustration with this is a wolf trap. What they do with a wolf trap is they take some meat and they put like a razor-sharp blade in the middle of that meat. They put it out in the middle of the woods where wolves have been spotted. A wolf will smell out that meat, that blood, because that's what a wolf wants. It's what a wolf desires. Comes to the trap, starts licking on the meat. That blood tastes good to the wolf. But as the wolf consumes the meat, it eventually gets to the blade. But the tongue doesn't know any difference. It's so enraged with lust for this meat that as its own tongue is being cut on the blade, it starts enjoying its own blood. But it doesn't know the difference at this point. It's too enraged. Its appetite is unsatisfied. He's too lustful, too hungry for this taste. And eventually the wolf, enough blood, bleeds out and the wolf becomes weak and dies right next to the trap. That's how the devil works. That's how temptation works. So consider these truths. And these are just, I'm only going to give you three, but scripture is full of these. But consider these truths when you desire something that is forbidden. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Like, right? When you, when you have this desire, you're like, I'm dead. What's this desire to me anyway? It's going to do me no good. I have been crucified. It's Christ who lives in me now. I am his, and I live by faith. That means trust. And in crucifixion, that's not a pleasant experience. So expect struggles, expect pain, expect discomfort. Be like, this is hard. Yes. It was hard for, your, it was hard for Jesus to be on that cross as he was struggling to breathe too, and as he was bleeding. It's going to be hard. It's just the age that we live in. Until eternity arrives, until he returns, it's going to be hard. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, that's Christ to Jesus, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. My grace is sufficient. Let me think about that. The next time you're like, oh, I could really, could really go for that. Okay, well, is this grace sufficient for you or is it not? The Son of God good enough for you, or is he not? Is eternity good enough for you, or is it not? Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So depend on him. Ride the wave. 
Wait for that void to, dis- to disappear. Go to him. Listen to music. Recall the promises of scripture. Consider what he has done for you. Weep if you must. Fall down on the ground if you must. Destroy the computer. or Whatever it may be, do what you need to do. Go for a walk. Just do something other than evil or turning to Satan or turning to Jezebel for help. So Ahab, not being clueless of Jezebel's scheming, as expected, is judged by Yahweh. So let's read this in verse uh, 17 uh, through 24. We'll read about the judgment that Yahweh uh, passes on Ahab. Then the word of Yahweh came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Nabath, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says Yahweh, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Nabat, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of Yahweh. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, Yahweh also said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And any one of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. So now God goes get, not, God uses Elijah here, not just another unnamed prophet. So clearly we've gone to like the next level, because Elijah is the prophet of this day, this point in history for God. So this is a serious matter. He goes to Ahab, and Ahab's like, oh, you found me, my enemy. He's like, yeah, because you've been working with the devil, Jezebel. So of course I have found you, because you're the king. You're supposed to be um, practicing justice and executing righteousness, and you're doing the exact opposite. And so judgment is passed. Ahab's judgment will be fulfilled in the next chapter, in verse 38. His son Jerome gets killed by Jehu in 2 Kings 9 with an arrow to the back, right between the shoulder blades. And then Jezebel, in 2 Kings 9, 36, she faces the, the, the most serious and most disgraceful way of death. Jehu goes to where she's at, and she's up in the, in the building's window, and Jehu's like, Any, anybody up there who's with me? And a couple of the eunuchs come to the window, I'm like, yeah, we are, and like, push her out. And they push her out. She falls, she splatters, gets blood on the walls, it's, in the, it's, it's scripture, it's there, horses trample her, and then Jehu goes away for a little bit, and he's like, oh, we should probably bury her, because she is, after all, a daughter of a king, but when they return, there's nothing left. Because when you leave something on the ground long enough, there's dogs around, they're going to eat it. And the only thing that's left is her skull, her hands, and her feet. The dogs have consumed everything. God's word is fulfilled. She gets no burial. She dies in disgrace. She's died under a severe judgment by Yahweh. And then the rest of Ahab's descendants, Jehu takes care of them in 2 Kings 10. And we will get there, Lord willing, in due time. But this is the thing. Though this is a severe judgment... And rightfully so, righteously so. Though this severe judgment has been passed, pay attention to what happens next. Verses 25 and 29. And note, verses 25 and 26, these two verses, this is a parenthetical note. 
Right? This is the author, the compiler of Keynes, just adding this in here for our, for our insight. He says, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. In other words, there's no one who sold himself to the devil, like Ahab did. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord, whom Yahweh cast out before the people of Israel. Remember, the Amorites, they're one of the peoples who possessed the promised land before Israel came along. And Israel possessing the promised land and supposedly were supposed to destroy the Amorites completely, that judgment was because of the idolatry that they had engaged in, the abominations that they were committing. Those very abominations Ahab himself was committing. So there's no king, there's nobody more evil than Ahab and his evil queen Jezebel, who was the person who incited him. But yet, despite that, let's continue reading. When Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes. He put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of Yahweh came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days, but in his son's days. I will bring the disaster upon his house. So judgment remains, but God postpones it a little bit out of mercy, out of grace. I mean, ponder that. This is Ahab, evil King Ahab. There's no one who's done more evil. The author himself just puts that in there right before this happens. No one's done more evil than this man. And yet, God is merciful. God is gracious towards evil King Ahab. Because the whole point that Ahab's been trying to do all along is to draw Ahab to himself. That was the point of the military victories. Even though Ahab ruined those moments, in this moment, when judgment's passed, Ahab turns to God. And God spares him for a, for a moment. Not completely. Even David himself, he wasn't spared the fullness of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And, and he gave faithfully. You know, he said, I have sinned, and God forgave him but he still lost the son. So we're, and you might be wondering, well, how is this possible? How is God able to look at a man like King Ahab and give grace? Well, where sin abounds, right? Romans 5, 20, grace abounds all the more. And that's the amazing thing. That's the beautiful thing about God's grace. And we must not think, well, but I'm not like Ahab. I mean, God, God surely must have standards. Well, he does. But that's why we call it grace. That's why we call it mercy. Because he makes a way through his son. That's, that's the, the mystery of it. That's the scandal of the cross. Why should his son die in our place? Why should, you know, like people say, well, when, when, we, when judgment day comes, um, people are going to be wondering, how can, we're not going to be asking, how can God send anyone to hell? We're going to be asking, how, how, does, how is God allowing anyone into heaven? How is God allowing anyone to have everlasting life? The question isn't how can God send anyone to hell. The question is how can he not send everyone to hell, right? Because of, of his goodness, because of his grace. That's the beautiful thing about God. So where, where we may struggle to trust God as we ought to, where we may perhaps not appreciate the blessings that he gives us as well as we ought to, or we disregard him when we shouldn't, when we fail, we should learn by Ahab's example that we can trust God in all things. 
We could trust that he is merciful. Like David with his senses. When God passed judgment on him, David's like, I don't want to fall by the hand of man. Put me at the hand of God. I will trust in him to do what is right and just. Consider Luke 18, 9, 14. This is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Right? He's comparing his sin, which he hasn't even confessed yet, but he's comparing the sins of others to himself. Don't ever do that. Don't ever think, well, at least I'm not like Ahab. That, that's not going to get you into heaven. You have your own sin to deal with. You have to deal with that. And that's what the Pharisee's saying. At least I'm not like this guy. At least I'm not like Hitler. You do not understand the evil that exists in your heart? Just because opportunity, privilege, and certain circumstances have not conditioned you, have not been granted to you as they were to other evil people in history, does not mean that you're not capable of the same evil. It's only by God's grace that you haven't done more evil in your life. So don't, don't get in the business of being, uh, thinking, well, at least I'm not as bad as these other people. Do not, that's what a Pharisee does. The Pharisee goes on. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now he's boasting. He's, he's spiritually beating his chest. Look at what I do for you, God. Because I do these things, surely it's a small thing if I do this on the side. Surely because I do all this stuff, a little lie from time to time is okay. Right? That's not how God works at all. In fact, the Pharisee is not a very good Pharisee because he doesn't recall the words of Isaiah there where he says, all of our righteous deeds, they're like filthy rags. But that's exactly what he's doing. He's like, God, here, here are my filthy rags. You like them? No, of course not. That's why Jesus goes on. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but physically beats his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, the one that thinks he is okay, the one who is proud of his righteous works, will be humbled in the day of judgment. But the one who acknowledges his sin before God and trusts God with his sin, God will be merciful towards. God will give forgiveness, grant forgiveness to that person. Just as God, when Ahab, when he was judged, Finally, trusting God, he repents, and we don't know how long he fasts for, but it's at least for a few days. God sees it, and God relents. Just like when Jonah went to Nineveh with the word of God, they repented, God relented. Because our God is a merciful and gracious God. So, when we struggle with trusting God in all things, if you struggle, if you've missed maybe everything of the sermon, one thing that you need to remember is this. Trust him with your sin. Right? If you missed the whole point about the first two battles and, and, and the um, Ahab being denied the vineyard, remember the last part. Trust God with your sin. Do not try to make yourself right before God, before going to him. That's like working in quicksand. You're not going to get anywhere. In fact, you're just going to dig deeper and further away from God. Do not try to go through a, 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 a system of, of works righteousness that, that claims that you can be justified by God in, in another way other than believing in his son. 
And another way other than trusting him with your sin, bring your sin to God, to Yahweh, to Jesus Christ. Let him deal with it because he is a good and merciful God. And then from there, trust him in all things. Don't reverse those two because in eternity it's not going to work out for you. Trust him with your sin first. Romans 8.32, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. In other words, God who did the hard thing already for us, if there is a hard thing for God, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Is Christ enough? God has already done the necessary thing for you. Everything else in your life is extra. Your kids, your job, your wealth, that's all extra. God has already done what you need to be done for all of eternity. Everything else is not needed. It's not necessary. As much as you might feel like, I need this, you might be surprised. There are gifts of generosity. They are gifts of grace. So yes, you may not be a king like Ahab was. You may not be successful. You may not be healthy. You might have very poor health. You may not be popular. But if you believe in the Son of God, you are forgiven. And there's nothing on this earth that's more valuable than that. Nothing more precious than that. So ask yourself, are you satisfied? Are you content with God? Do you trust God with all things, with what comes after death? Not only before the blessing do you trust him, but do you trust him after the blessing? Do you trust him with the blessing? He gives and he takes away. Blessed be his name. And if not, well, why not? What are you trying to gain? What can you gain? What do you have to lose? If you believe, you are saved. And if you are saved, you have eternity. You have everything that you need. So trust him. And remember, he's a good and holy God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace this morning. Thank you uh, for this example of Ahab. Help us to wrap our minds around how you forgive such an evil man. How you can be grace, gracious and merciful towards such evil. And help us to realize how evil we actually are apart from you. Help us to recognize our own depravity that we're dead in our sins outside of Christ and only by uh, your Son, by the power of the Spirit, by your breath, are we made alive, are we made born again, that we have anything of any value in us. Help us to recognize your holiness, which really magnifies our sin. And when we struggle with this concept of how holy you are and how evil all our sin is and the sins of others, uh, help us to just submit ourselves to it. Help us not get lost in confusion or not understanding or trying to seek understanding in order to have faith, but help us to have faith that seeks understanding and not the other way around. And Father, forgive us for our sins. We, we put our sins before you. We, we confess them. You know our sins. So Father, we ask that the Spirit would prick us, even right now, that your Spirit would divide our soul, that it would discern what is righteous and unrighteous within us, that it would pluck out the idols of our hearts, that you would destroy them before us if we're unwilling to bring them to you, 
do what is necessary in our lives, do the hard thing that we're unwilling to do for our sake and for your glory. Help us to keep an internal perspective on all things. And Father, help us to be satisfied in you and you alone. Help us to drink of the living water, to eat of the living bread. Help us to turn to you when we feel we are hungry or when we are tempted or when we have an appetite of the flesh growing within us. Help us to feed that appetite with your word, with your righteousness, with your holiness. Help us to fight the good fight. Help us to stand fast to the confession that we hold that your Son, Jesus Christ, he is Lord, he is Savior. And as we do this, Father, help us to continue to look to the cross. Help us to look to Calvary every day. Remind us every day that we are crucified in Christ. It's not us who lives, but it's Christ who lives in us. So help us to be faithful to that, Father. And as we do that, we ask that you'd bless the bread and the cup before us. That the elements before us, that they would remind us of what your Son has done on the cross. That it is finished. All the sins are covered. All of them, Father. That where our sin, where we think there's too much sin or too much guilt, there is much, much, much more grace to cover all of that sin and many more. May this truth humble us. May it lead us to repentance. May your word and spirit strengthen us in that endeavor. May it help us live holy lives as we anxiously await for the day when your son will return and he will pass judgment on all who are righteous and all who are unrighteous. And we who look to your son, we will sit at a table with him to enjoy a beautiful, wonderful feast with the groom and the bride. Father, we thank you for all these things. And we ask all these things for your glory by the power of the Spirit. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.